if you really take a a full understanding of what's in the common law about First Nations right, the answer is our jurisdiction. The answer is our laws. The answer is that these societies have to act as societies. And we can't without recognition that our laws are there. And our laws are there to do something that's really important. That's uh, to allow our communities to advance our interests in the way that we live. Our society lives in this area a little bit differently than, say, mainstream Canadian society does. Uh, but that's, you know, that's, that's, there's definitely room for that. There's room for a different society managing itself in a different way in Canada. And I think that if there's a recognition in Canadian law that there are these societies with their own laws and make some space for them, that I think that this um, kinder, gentler community could, uh, exist is a, an example to the rest of society that they can be kinder and gentler themselves. Welcome to Of Council. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. In this episode of Of Counsel, Sarah Mainville joins us to discuss her role as counsel, strategic advisor, and negotiator within OKT Law, a leading law firm in Aboriginal legal affairs. After completing her law degree at Queen's University, Sarah continued her pursuit for justice at the University of Toronto, where she received her LLM and awarded the June Callwood Bursary for Graduate Studies. Sarah is not only an accomplished lawyer, but also an accomplished author of publications surrounding the history of Indigenous treaties, their importance, and their integration into international treaties and resulting obligations for Canada. Sarah's story is one of child of the Kuchiching First Nation to chief, and one that is truly remarkable and awe-inspiring. Her wealth of knowledge and experience is invaluable to her clients and firm in pursuing what has driven her from an early age, justice, inclusion, and dialogue for her community in Canada's legal affairs. So I'm here with uh, Sarah Mainville, and I should confess from the beginning that um, Sarah and I went to law school together in the same year. Uh, But since then, we haven't really seen each other, and a whole lot of amazing things have happened with you, Sarah. Since then, you've completed a master's degree in law at the University of Toronto, where you won the June Callwood Bursary for Graduate Studies. You managed uh, to complete this, notwithstanding a very difficult time in your life with the passing of your mother. Uh, You articled with Ecojustice, you represented Kuchiching as a lawyer, then counselor, then most recently as chief. Uh, You've been an active uh, political leader in the Grand Council Treaty Number 3 and Chiefs of Ontario Committees. In 2015, you were named uh, to the Multi-Interest Advisory Committee for the federal EA review process by the Assembly of First Nations. And then in 2018, uh, you'll be featured as an expert in APTN's FutureHistoryTV.ca, Episode 10 on Justice. Um, so... Before we get into all the the questions I normally do, I want to ask you about that. We were just talking about it a little bit. Um, w- w- tell me about this um, APTN series that's coming, where you're going to be an expert on justice. Well, it was a, it was great timing because I, we were just talking uh, myself and my law firm OKT about a partnership, and then this uh, TV uh, production crew came in to interview me as expert about justice episode for APTN. I think that probably gave me a lot of credibility, not just in my firm but also for the the TV crew that was there. There's a wonderful actress named Tamara Pademski, who's a TV producer as well. She she's done some series for APTN before. This one specific about Indigenous viewpoints and, in, and Indigenous society. And uh, she thought it was important to do an episode on justice and that she had had somebody that was had some credibility in the Indigenous community talk about some justice issues. And that was uh, my role in that, in that particular episode. It was, it was a lot of fun. 
And that probably put you on much more of a fast track to partnership then. <laughs> <laughs> I think it helped for sure. <laughs> so how did you get into law? Um, what motivated you to pursue um, the practice that you're now doing? I think it surprises people because I kind of have a quiet demeanor about myself, but I'm ambitious. And uh, when I was in grade eight, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer in, in my future. Um, I did a public admin degree because I read on being a lawyer and I read that was a, probably a good undergrad, not just because I wanted to be a lawyer, but also because it was a big issue for First Nations. Running their own governance was such a big issue and it would ground me in, uh, in some of the most important issues and solutions. I've always been a solutions or- oriented person. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so it was, it was always an ambition of mine and it was something that was a goal of mine from the outset. And it was, um, I think I've always, um, seen issues and try to uh, try to find a way to fix issues rather than uh, turn turn away from them and uh, that's something that I've done uh, in uh, some direct direct actions um, when I was first doing undergrad the government at the time was cutting a bunch of post-secondary funding for first nation students so I sat in at a government office like I've always been of that ilk even though I'm you know a quieter person I've always not shied away from from uh, using my voice and in, in advocating for my community. So even from grade eight, you know, I have to say yeah. that's not um, <laughs> a common thing we hear. Almost every person we've interviewed so far says that this happened. You by know, accident? By <laughs> accident. And I have to include myself in that. It's more of like a lack of direction that a lot of us seem to end up practicing law. But here you are, even as early as grade eight, knowing that you want to make a difference and you wanted to do it through law. Um, was there any one in particular that really motivated you whether specifically in law or just in the mindset of being uh, active in achieving these things for you and your community? Um, When I was in my last year of high school, I started to be interested in a land claim committee. If uh, people that listen to your podcast know this, but land claims go on forever. So actually, um, the land claim committee that I was on, there's actually not a resolution for that land claim yet. Unbelievable. And it didn't. It's been a very long time. So, oh, wow. um, I've, uh, I've met, I met the community's lawyer and, um, was friends with that person. After undergrad, I also worked with another lawyer, um, just, uh, post university and found myself often, um, being, uh, a very big resource for lawyers working in the communities that I was working for, not just my own, but other communities. I work for a tribal council. And it's actually kind of been a niche that stayed with me. I often um, work with other lawyers on um, the community engagement part. Mm-hmm. I think because of my background and because I grew up on a reserve and because I understand it and I've I've done a lot of different things in First Nation communities that I'm trusted. So um, I think that was a lot of it too, because before I went to law school, I had friends who said they are, you know, who got to know me, knew I wanted to be a lawyer and just encouraged me, mm-hmm. you know, do you get, you know, did you write your LSAT yet? Did you get your law school application and, and things like that? So it's always been um, something that's been part of my work life. Growing up on a reserve, were there lessons that you uh, learned during your childhood and just being within your community, valuable lessons that you now take with you in your day-to-day practice as a lawyer? I, I think a lot. Of, I think for me, I um, there's a couple of things. Um, one, knowing about uh, the history of the treaty that I'm, that I'm a, a member of, and that's uh, Treaty Number 3, and knowing some of the oral history about that. And one of the big things that I've always struck me was that closing speech that one of the chiefs made and actually the chief of my community. And when was that? And and this is in 1873. So there's actually a newspaper that was there, a newspaper reporter that was there, and there's several people that actually recorded, um, wrote, wrote down what was said on one of the speeches. And uh, the chief had said, you know, this was done openly in the light of day. Transparency was such a big thing because we were, we didn't write things down, right? So as much people were there included in the decision to, to make the treaty, that it was going to be stronger because of that. And that's sort of something that's carried with me, this transparency and accountability. It's always been a, a, a big issue for me, something that I've always advocated with my clients. You want to make a strong decision, include as many people as possible in it, because that's something that's sort of ingrained in us that we want to be in the room when those decisions are made. 
So, um, and I grew up, my mother was a, also a strong advocate and she went to every community meeting, made sure there was community meetings uh, for one thing and uh, always brought me there. So I remember, you know, just as a kid crawling around in the, in the community hall as there was, you know, debate going back and forth, people trying to be of one mind about something, some issue going forward. We all need to decide together as a community um, that we want to do this together. We want to agree to do this. We think this is a good idea for the community. And, and that back and forth and that dialogue's always been such a part of um, First Nation communities. And we're losing some of that because um, we're relying too much on the Indian Act and, and uh, band councils for make all the decisions on the behalf of the communities. For me, I often advocate with the clients, you want to make a strong, lasting decision, try to be as inclusive as possible. Do you find sometimes there's... Um or maybe fundamentally there's a conflict with your approach, which is open and making sure the community as a whole understands and, and discusses these issues with letter of the law. It's written down often secretively with a final product. And how sure. do you reconcile those two? I, I think there I think there definitely is um, a, a spectrum of, of advancing issues in a way that's as broadly inclusive as you can be versus those things that are sort of in the daily, the expectation the community has is this is something, a day-to-day decision that a government will make on our behalf. And I think that that's, um, it's important to, it's important to have those conversations about processes in the community to see what their expectations are mm-hmm. for different decisions. Um, for me, I think that um, uh, there's probably, uh, there's probably more things that are better to at least um notify the community about and um, for sure I have worked on more than one issue actually probably about a dozen issues where there wasn't an inclusive process not enough people understand why it is Um, for example in Grand Council Treaty 3 we have we call it the resource law and it's um, something that was made in 1997 it was written down it was written down by a Canadian lawyer and and it was written down and there was not enough people in the different meetings. So the thing that we keep on rehashing is that people don't understand why it was written that way, why we made certain decisions, because not enough people were involved in that very, very important decision-making process. So we keep on rehashing it because I think really what what the communities want is a do-over. They want to go through the process again and try to be more inclusive about it. So I think that there's that balancing that you have to do as a society, and all societies do it, right? Mm-hmm, if you make really important decisions for everybody's future, try to have some type of engagement, some types of cult consultation, and some type of um, open decision-making process so that people have a say and people use their voice. Returning a little bit to advocacy and, you know, leading up, we've we had some communication discussing some of the lessons you've learned. And uh, one of the strongest things that you mentioned to me was uh, some of the wisdom passed on from your mother. And you said that she told you um, that she knew the secret to a good life and that's integrity. And you said that since then, I've been living with that as a first principle to live with integrity. And this includes honesty, bravery, compassion, wisdom, truth, respect, and humility. These are the seven uh, grandfather teachings of my world. So expanding a little bit upon that, and, and I'd like you to discuss that a little bit more. How does this tie into, you know, the wisdom passed on from elders in the community? I know recently you've attended the Elders Conference in Minnesota for discussions on Indigenous law. Uh, so tell me about that conference as well as some of these valuable lessons you've learned through elders and how you try and pass that on and in a sense translate it into law for for uh, the benefit of your community? My mother's teachings came to me at a, at a really important time in my life because I was at the time doing my master's of law. I was actually writing my thesis at the time and um, didn't know how I was gonna get through it because my mother was also dying of cancer. And uh, when she had told me, uh, when she had said this, it just, everything flashed on for me. It was just like, you know, the, you know, the eureka moment uh, about everything I was doing. Because I think what I was aimed at, what I was trying to do was to, as so many Anishinaabe elders try to do, is they, is they uh, think about things. Um, in our in our traditions, we give an elder tobacco, and you give them enough tobacco to put in their pipe, and and when they smoke their pipe, they're thinking and they're thinking about something 
um, maybe it's a question that you have for them or an idea you have for them or you're just looking for some guidance. And um, the, the, the whole point of what my mom was telling me was that you have to live, live these teachings in order to in order to play your role in, in your society. And I think that's so much about, um, we call it Bimadazawin. Bimadazawin, um, I've been told is, there's four words in our constitution. Um, it's an oral constitution, of course, because we're, we, we, don't, we don't necessarily write things down. Um, and so Bimadazawin is the idea of, everybody tries to attain a good life. And um, integrity is the key to that, the key to unlocking that. You know, you're not worrying about some untruth you told somebody and if, or something that you've sort of, you only did willy-nilly and you're not really proud of what you did. You know, you basically live your life with integrity. If you tell a client you're going to do something, you know, you have to, you have to deliver and you have to, um, and you have to be honest if, you know, maybe you're not as proud of it as you would be, you know, all of these things, I think it just, it just resolves um, going forward so that you're not living in the past. Mm-hmm. And I think that's everything that's, that was key to me to hear from her. And at the point where she was like, you know, there's the, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't melodrama. She wasn't feeling for sorry for herself. She was just trying to um, help me mm-hmm. on my path forward. And I think that was a, it was a wonderful gift, and and um, it was something that uh, I th- I think made my life so much easier, right? You know, like I think um, as an ambitious person, you know, you could cut corners and you could try to do you know different you know try to get away with not doing everything you can in the work that you do. But I think as somebody that sort of wants to put a marker out there that hey, like I I. I go above and beyond. I do the best I can. Um, you know, I, uh, for me, um, my ca- capacity to do research and to make sure that I, you know, uncover all that's out there um, for my clients is is also something that's part of my reputation that's, you know, it's part of everything that I've, you know, learned from my mother and my elders uh, about uh, being a good person, living a good life and, and, uh, and, and doing my part, upholding my responsibility. Mm-hmm. In starting um, your law practice, you represented Kuchiching as a lawyer, and you helped uh, community members in a number of ways. And soon after, you were elected councillor in the First Nation government, and then in 2014, you were elected uh, chief of Kuchiching First Nation. And I'm very interested to know what that meant to you on a personal level, and you know how. Uh, what that means in your role as chief and and also your experience as well serving in in that role as I, as I mentioned like i'm i'm I am an ambitious person, but to become a lawyer, I was n- never held an ambition to be a chief and um and I, in fact uh, the the chief that was before me actually constantly guided me away from politics you know like why did you go out and get a law degree? why did you go out and practice just to be something that I could be? You know, I, you know, he did, you know, go to university, but he didn't, he didn't strike out to be, you know, a professional, a professional. And he, he, he often told me like, I need you to stay in this role. I need you to be a lawyer. Unfortunately, this person who, you know, uh, was just wonderfully generous and, and, and almost a mentor to me, he passed away and he passed away just before an election. And I was asked if I would run for chief. And I said, I think about it and I thought about it and I thought about the things that I wanted to do and I talked to some key people that I knew were important to support me if I was going to be elected and uh, I got their seal of approval and so I, I did run and it, for me um, being elected was just uh, knowing that I was respected in my community and also knowing that uh, people seen me as having the vision to fill some very big shoes like the chief was chief for 16 or 17 years before me so it was some pretty big shoes to fill and uh it was definitely a big challenge um there's 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 uh, so much um so many gaps that you have to try to fill as chief of your community and there's not you know like you're not just um you're not just a political leader you're dealing with a bunch of other things you know you're dealing with the healthcare system you know 
any sort of any any government funding um, to funerals and to um, the people going away to school. You know everything. Like you've you're being asked to help out and advocate for your members. You know throughout North America, it's it's pretty. It's a pretty. Um, it's uh, humbling, but also it's it's pretty. Uh, it's it's a situation where I think that I, f- I felt the most amount of community acceptance ever in my life when I was named chief. Did you feel that your uh, legal education offered you some valuable tools in achieving what you needed to for your community? I think definitely because we were so under-resourced. I think that when I went to meetings and when I was uh, bringing people with me, I certainly tried to mentor people and try to get them to push files forward. You, know, you can't do that without following up, uh, without you know documenting things, without um, keeping good notes, without um, making sure that you get commitments. Like every single time you meet with a government to get commitments from them, to get them to you know, ask the most pointed question you can and get commitments from them was, was key. And you know I tried to, tried to utilize those skills as much as I could, but I also, I wasn't scared of community meetings. Um, prior to um, uh, my election, there wasn't a community meeting for years, and people were saying, "Well, you don't want to do that because you know they'll get nothing but you know fingers pointed at you and people blaming you for things you know that you may or may not have anything to do with." Right. But I've never, I've been never shy for criticism. I think criticism is a good thing. I think it, there's always an you know an an air of something with a criticism, and I was yeah. open to that. And certainly as a, a leader, you know, you have to be willing to accept that not everyone uh, is going to agree with you on every point. Absolutely, yeah. And especially in an elected position, there's always going to be people who feel as though, you know, something else could have been done. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of the, uh, let me ask you two questions. Mm-hmm. First of all, did you feel that in some ways your legal education and being a lawyer um distracted uh, the community from some of the important issues in a sense um, made you, I guess you could say, perceived in a different way mm-hmm. than chiefs that preceded you? Oh, for sure. I think that because I was um, a licensed lawyer, I think that um, some some community members who, you know, expected me to do, you know, everything I can do to, um, for example, deal with the land claims and stuff, didn't think I would go as far is somebody else who you know wasn't a licensed lawyer you know everybody's saying well you, you you wouldn't get on the protest line if you're because you're too scared you'd be too scared of losing your license and i was like no like i've i've done that before before i was chief we had a direct action on the highway and we had a toll booth actually because we had a highway claim and we we're saying the highway was was uh was not um legally taken from us and so that land was ours so we put a toll booth up there I was one of the first people to get into that toll booth, even though I was a licensed lawyer. I mean, I was scared. I was thinking that there could be repercussions. I was definitely thinking that somebody was going to uh, complain to the law society that I was doing that, but none of that happened. But I, I was re- prepared for that. Uh, you know, my community has always been the first to support me, so I've always been in return the first to try to help uh, as much as I could, and so I. As chief, I think that that was sort of the criticism of me that I would always follow the rules, always follow the law, you know, be too policy oriented and things like that. But definitely there wasn't enough. Like, I mean, honestly and frankly, there wasn't enough policy in my community. And I did try to uh, have better policy and have equality of opportunity for everybody. And uh, that was one of my big one of my big goals and the other goal was about transparency and accountability. I blogged about where I was going every week. Um, I talked, uh, I did a lot of interviews on the radio. I tried to tell as many people as possible what was going on in Kuchiching and uh, for the most part to get allies. And I think in the district and in Thunder Bay, we had allies. People wanted to see Kuchiching do well because I was doing my best to be a good ambassador for a community. Did you feel that being a lawyer uh, opened up doors that might have been harder for other chiefs to obtain? I think so. I think I got inv- invitations to a lot of um, different government events because of being relatively high profile mm-hmm. and um, being able to articulate um, a First Nation perspective in different meetings. I definitely think I got more invitations than 
than the average chief would have gotten. Was there any particular challenges that you faced during your term that were challenging to you on a personal or professional level? I, well, I think, I mean, one of the major things I thought that was going to be an issue when I put my name in for the election was because I I was married to a woman. And I, you know, I didn't know if my community, which was, um, there was a large uh, population of Roman Catholics. I just thought there'd be some um, homophobia. There was, like I heard, you know, from third parties who were heard that certain people were saying that, you know, they thought it was kind of icky that I would be the community leader and, you know, childish things like that. But other than that, I think um, I I won uh, the election with with a lot more votes than the second place candidates. So I think that for the most part, people seen beyond that. And uh, But I, I know for sure that my wife in the community was a target because of some of that factor in there. And I, you know, I, I think about Premier Wynn a lot. And I think about the fact that she's a target just because of that as well. I think that's kind of the, so the negative part of um, social media and, you know, comment sections under newspaper, you know, opinions or articles is, is sort of that element that's out there. The people that think that they're anonymous and they can just, you know, say, things just to be controversial right but some some of that happened you know this going in in the Mm -hmm. sense that you know you've already said that you're someone who welcomes criticism and you perhaps that's not the appropriate word there because you shouldn't be criticized um in that regard but having uh open dialogue about this um i think it speaks uh, volumes about your integrity and and how you're willing to uh take um, these small aspects of the bad to achieve the much greater good um, that I'm sure came from your term. Um, what are some of the more common challenges in a broader sense facing First Nations in fairly negotiating Indigenous rights and interests right now? One of the major things that came to light through Cindy Blackstock's uh, litigation with the First Nation and Child Caring Society is that we are so um, discriminated against in funding levels for everything. Everything from infrastructure to education to housing to child welfare, we're, we're underfunded. And because of that, and I'm very cognizant of the, this when I have a First Nation client, I know they're giving up something to pay me to do the work I'm doing. And I'm, I'm very cognizant of that. I, I think that that's one of the things that I, I know very, very well that is very important to have, um, legal advice on so many things and uh, sometimes litigation on, on things that are important to the community. But I also know that they're giving up something by doing that, you know, whether, and if you're only getting 60% of the funding that you really need for child welfare and you're putting aside $80,000 to do uh, a legal challenge for something else, you know, it's, it's, it's something that, that, that I'm, I'm very sensitive about and, and something that I've had to deal with when I was, when I was chief of my community. That, um, that's a big challenge and the government of Canada knows that full well. They know that they can just wait us out, especially when we bring something to court. They can just drag their feet and wait it out and uh, we'll have to call it a day. So that's a big challenge. Notwithstanding that, from what you've seen over the past 10 years, um, would you say things have become better at all? Um, I think that this is a yes and no answer to it. I definitely, I, I definitely do believe that First Nations as a group of clients is definitely more sophisticated in, in, um, regards to their legal rights and also their responsibilities. So I think that they're a much, much more sophisticated client than there were when I first went to law school. And, um, and I think that's, a, that's a really good thing. Um, you know, I, I've, I've joked over the last year that I feel like, you know, that Charlie Brown cartoon where, you know, I'm running for the ball to kick it because I really think I can kick it this time around. And it's still getting taken away f- from me by, you know, a fellow government because, um, you know, I went through this whole process through um, with federal government's announcements on EA reform, for example, very much thinking that our rights would be recognized and our laws would be recognized under this new EA regime. And it's not so much that it's disappointing that federal governments can't see 
the opportunity in working with First Nations as governments. But it's just it's just really frustrating because it's there in the law. Like it's if you really take a a full understanding of what's in the common law about First Nations right, the answer is our jurisdiction. The answer is our laws. The answer is that these societies have to act as societies. And we can't without recognition that our laws are there. And our laws are there to do something that's really important. That's uh, to allow our communities to advance our interests in the way that we live. Our society lives in this area a little bit differently than, say, mainstream Canadian society does. Uh, but that's, you know, that's, that's, there's definitely room for that. There's room for a different society managing itself in a different way in Canada. And I think that if there's a recognition in Canadian law that there are these societies with their own laws and make some space for them, that I think that this um, kinder, gentler community could uh, exist is a, an example to the rest of society, that they could be kinder and gentler themselves. As a lawyer and someone you know very involved in these negotiations, perhaps you see the past that maybe leads you to this sense of optimism. But what do you say to members of the community who can't see the same path or clearing through the forest that you might see, how do you try and maintain optimism for them that eventually this will come to be what is needed? I, I never stop talking. Like I, I, I'm on social media and <laughs> I, I, I definitely get people on um, Indigenous uh, Twitter uh, comes to me sometimes and and criticizes me because I'm actually working within, I, you know, I work with clients like the Assembly of First Nations, Chiefs of Ontario, and um, some people criticize that because that's working within the system. And, you know, I, I have those discussions. I talk, you know, offline or, you know, ask people to coffee, or, you know, if they're in Toronto, and I try to talk to people about, you know, there's many paths here, there's many roads here, and, you know, be true to you know what road you think you're you're on, but I'm being true to mine, and and my road inc- means that I want change now because I have a 13 year old daughter, you know I I'm I'm not waiting for monumental change um, sometime decades from now uh, on principle. I want my kid to to you know grow up much like her friends here in Toronto and and see every opportunity and not see barriers. What is uh, something, one thing, or or one major um, area that you think the government has to prioritize if it truly wants to address the concerns facing First Nations? Something I live again back to my tree. There's something that I live in my life, and that's uh, that's an exchange between um, Canada and my my society in the Shnabe in Treaty Three. Um, one of the chiefs had said. Um, Sort of as a closing promise to one another is, is that you you can lend me Canadian society. You lend me your sons and daughters, and I'll teach them what's good, fine and good in my society. I'll teach them the good things in my society, in the Shinobi society, and we'll lend you our sons and daughters, and you can teach them what's fine and good in your society. And that's some something that I've always thought is the key to all this. And you. And, and if I'm optimistic about one thing, I think it is that Canadian society, maybe not as a whole, but certainly there's a lot of glimmers of hope in different universities and different institutions and in the justice system itself here in Ontario, we have a deputy attorney general for Indigenous justice in Kim Murray. I think that's great. I think that's fabulous. And I think that there's sort of glimmers of life of light and all these barriers that Indigenous people have, but it's that information exchange, that educational exchange. I think that's really going to bring to focus um, some of the really good things that can happen by two societies, two societies living alongside each other, but living as, you know, sort of discrete societies and not having one overtake the other. I think that's the promise of treaties. So um, you seem to me, and I, I know this to be the case, um, you're someone who sets goals and achieves them. And, um, you know, it, it's uh, amazing to see what you've accomplished in such a short period of time. Even since we left law school, I'm starting to feel a bit lazy here. Um, so how do you set goals? Are goals important to you? And how do you overcome obstacles along the way to persist? I think that's one thing 
another thing that I've learned from elders is to start things in a good way. And so from the start of my day to the start of my week, to the start of my month, to the start of my year, to start things in a way that you're planning. And uh, there's a there's an elder um, that I've worked with on the Dubois committee. Uh, he was working, this is post uh, Justice Yakabuchi's um, jury's report. So there's a Dubois committee and we held, had elders giving us guidance. And um, one of the elders told us about the importance of doing things right. And that was something that he learned from his dad because they were living out in the elements and it was very cold. If you're going to build yourself a shelter, you build it right. And I think that's my sort of idea about goals is if you're going to try to do something, if you're going to be ambitious and you try to do something really good, you take the time to plan it out right. And you don't, you know, you don't settle. You, you do the planning first and you figure it out. And that's what I do from the start of my day to the start of my week to the start of my month to the start of my year. I do that planning first. I think that's great advice. I want to ask you a little bit about um, your firm that your partner at is OKT Law. Um, this is one of Canada's leading firms in advocating for Indigenous communities and very reputable lawyers there. There's a long list I have here, but I'd rather people just go to the website and see than me go through the great list. But um, tell me about this firm and what it stands for and your role within it. Sure. I, I think I've been a friend of the firm um, for, well, you know, long before I joined it. Um, I, I was a solo practitioner, I think, in 2007. So um, when things were... Um, there are files either I had a conflict with or or that I just, I wanted somebody else to do it because I was too close to the client. I would generally give it to OKT because I trusted them to do, you know, the the necessary things. And it, it's such a, it's a, it's a deep, but it's a comprehensive firm. So we do everything from corporate commercial to human rights law. Um, we've dealt with some poverty issues. We have, an, we have a fairly you know, we have a pretty good pro bono budget in, in our firm that's doing some really good things uh, around some social justice issues as well. So it's, 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 it's fairly comprehensive in its work towards social justice for um, First Nations in particular. Um, but uh, um, there's, a, there's a couple of things that, that's great about OKT, um, but it's taken me a while to... Uh, to join in and chime in and say, okay, I agree with that. And one, one of the things is that they, they don't, um, they don't work for anybody, but the first nation side. So there's no industry work. There's no government work. Um, they just don't do that. I think on principle. And I think that's, that, that's a, that's a really, um, <laughs> the vision I think was really good because it's, it's made it long lasting advocate and we don't run into conflicts very often. Um, but it also, I think that um, we is a full service firm. We can help the First Nation from you know its early its early days of of, of dealing with other governments to land claims negotiations to the further on like the nice things like the nego the negotiations I just did for the Chiefs of Ontario is doing this Hydro One deal with the province of Ontario and and, and facilitating a deal where we bought. Um, 14 million shares for 129 First Nations in Ontario, like these bigger deals, I think those sorts could be longer lasting, creating more sustainable communities because they have other sources of income. And so I, the philosophy of OKT and helping and facilitating and, and just sort of working with the communities in the way that they, you know, they're very much in the in the driver's seat as far as, you know, what they need from us. And I think we, we're very flexible in how we work with them. And um, uh, the, the work that I've been bringing in with the other, the, the large organizations like Chiefs of Ontario and Assembly of First Nations, I think is a good, is a really good fit for them. Um, and I think that uh, we're, we now have a profile from coast to coast to coast. We have a office in Yellowknife. So I think it's, Working with communities from day one to, in the case of John Otheus, I think we're in, you know, four decades of work with, you know, particular communities. I think it's amazing. So it's, uh, I'm very proud to be associated with this firm. How many lawyers are there now? <laughs> Good question. I think, <laughs> I think we're around 24 lawyers. Um, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're dealing with being in Toronto and, and having younger lawyers, I was sure 
you are as well. Um, it'd be a good conversation for us to have over coffee is retaining young lawyers as they advance to their second and third and fourth years and trying to, you know, have families here in Toronto. I, I myself am dealing with that with my 13 year old living here in Toronto and trying to create a sustainable practice, but also um, to make sure that your young associates also have have a good good means to do the things that they need to do to you know advance their family situation and, and things of that nature in their career as well. So you know on that the reason I ask is um, it's it's a it's a good sized firm. I mean there's not many firms that have many lawyers unless we're talking about sort of Bay Street and and I wonder is do you feel that that's uh, given the complexity of Indigenous law and the sort of deals you were just describing and how they operate with government and as you say treaties that can last for many many years decades uh is this something that's possible for you know a sole practitioner who wants to you know and i I guess the second part of that question that i was going to ask is you know what sort of advice would you offer um uh first nation lawyers coming into the profession to achieve success um is this something where you have to join a larger firm or um are there other approaches I, I think trying to associate uh, yourself with colleagues is, is key to being a First Nation side lawyer. You're often dealing with the largest law firm in on the other side of, of you know your files with the Department of Justice, and that's really difficult to serve as a solo practitioner. And I know that because I've been a solo practitioner for seven years. Um, it's definitely um, being in a, a larger firm's open doors for me and I'm, I'm able to be more flexible with my clients. My clients um, um, can can get some really sound advice in, in a number of different ways with a, with a law firm versus being very much waiting on my time schedule and my you know, availability when I was a solo practitioner. Um, I would not advise a young uh, Indigenous lawyer to start off on their own. There's just too much to learn. A mentorship is such a big part of our profession. And, and uh, I've always tried to um, mentor people, even even in the early years, just because of my First Nation experience, to 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 try to give advice to people on being a better lawyer for First Nations. Um, uh, having that collegiality, dealing with difficult issues, and you often deal with a lot of difficult issues with First Nations. Like you're often in the gray um, when you're dealing with First Nations issues. So I think that it's just it's it would be too much of a burden on a single person dealing with these issues all by themselves. Um, you can't do this in a silo for sure. Mm-hmm. So as a uh, now a proven advocate for your clients and communities, and I'm sure as chief, um, you know, advocacy can mean many things. And, and uh, a lot of that are things outside of a courtroom. So what's a rule that you live by in advancing interests that are important to you as a matter of advocacy? I, I don't burn bridges. I mean, that's a, that's a big thing. Like as, as much as I don't like what um, governments have done to the communities I work for, I know that I know that there still could be good people that are that are on the other side of the table that I never burn bridges because also um, from the Department of Justice to um, indigenous services, um, these lawyers find themselves there's a lot of movement. and so you could be dealing with somebody in, the Ministry of Energy, and all of a sudden they're now in Ministry of Finance. So it's, I think it's really important to not burn bridges. I worked with a an older Indigenous lawyer when I was my second and third year out, and he actually very roundly criticized me for being too friendly with uh, the Attorney General um, folks uh, that, that were on the other side of the table. And um, I listened to him, but I didn't really take the criticism to heart because I think that's maybe in a another era. I think uh, in this era, I think that it's really important to, uh, to be respectful and, um, and definitely advocate. Like, don't, don't forget that you're advocating for the client, but I also think that it's, it's important to have relationships. What's, uh, on the flip side to that is what is some advice that you hear often, uh, from other lawyers that you think is just wrong, particularly advice that may be given to First Nations lawyers? Um, I think I think we could go back to what I just said. Like, I, th- I think that it's, 
um, when I first started out in my solo practice, I actually used a domain name. It was Mm indigenouswarrior.com. And I think people figured that I was just going to fight everyone, right? That it was indigenous (laughs) wars. But I think that advocacy is is so much more than just um, making arguments. I think advocacy is is much more rounded in um, getting people to um, hear like the narrative that you have to share about your client and believe that they're that that they can help you achieve justice for for the community that you're working for. Mm-hmm. And I think I've 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 done that successfully on a lot of different files for different communities I worked for, in particular my own. And I think that's always been sort of. Um, my mantra is is that um, you know these relationships, uh, these existing relationships with indigenous peoples, they're alliances. We're not adversaries. Mm-hmm. You know, we we have these alliances, and we have to build upon them. And uh, and I think that advocacy in a more balanced form is uh, is to achieve those alliances, those stronger friendships uh, between what now might be an adversarial relationship doesn't need to be in the future. A question I ask a lot of my guests is uh, how you approach clients. Um, do you feel uh, in your role, is there a different way in approaching Indigenous clients than non-Indigenous clients? Um, or is there an approach that you have for every type of client that you think has served you well over the years? I think my approach has always been, um, I know quite a few Indigenous lawyers who sometimes are a better fit for a client that comes about with me and wants to work with me. And often my advice is that there might be somebody in the Indigenous legal world that's, you know, possibly do the work better than I can. I'm For, for me, the, the larger goal is that there's more of us out there. And uh, I've always tried to, um, if, if I see somebody tr- blazing a trail for themselves, I try to support them. You know, they could be in OKT or they might be someplace else. Mm -hmm. And I've tried to support other Indigenous lawyers. And I think that's the only way we're going to get to the Supreme Court if we do more of that. And that's something that that I've been trying to do a lot in my career. When I was on different chiefs committees, I've often been on legal committees just because of my background. And I've always advocated that we try as much as possible at least to have an Indigenous member on the legal team. And, and to to build more um, more specialization for indigenous lawyers, and uh, one of the problems is some, a lot of these indigenous lawyers are out by themselves, and it's hard. They have to be generalists rather than specialists. But definitely, if there's somebody that's going out there doing the hard work of blazing their own trail, I'll, I'll support them. You mentioned something that's really important, and that is you know, there's a lot of um, discussion and disappointment that the last appointment to the Supreme Court of Canada wasn't Indigenous person. And is this something that you think that you'll see in your lifetime? And also, what should the governments know in making these appointments about the value that Indigenous people can contribute to courts of appeals and and superior courts? I thought right to the 11th hour that John Burroughs was going to be named to the Supreme Court of Canada. I really did. Um, and one of the things that I really, I'm kind of, well, I'm critical of the federal government for is um, if bilingualism is going to be a requirement, then change the act because it's not a requirement in the act. So if bilingualism is going to be important for the Supreme Court of Canada, then um, I don't know if we're going to see somebody in my lifetime because um, it's not necessarily, uh, it's, it's not necessarily where you're going to see Indigenous peoples really, not that I don't know bilingual Indigenous lawyers, I know, I know a few, there's, a, there's actually a couple in OKT, but I think that we're after the wrong goals if that's going to be one of the centerpieces of appointing a Supreme Court judge. I'm sure that we can think of just in this room, Supreme Court judges that were not bilingual, that were amazing Supreme Court judges. And I think that it's it's um, it's almost like a shell game for me with this federal government on the new requirements that is sort of created out of thin air. And uh, I, I felt like that. 
when the last Supreme Court judge was named, that it was just out of thin air, that all of a sudden bilingualism was the most important thing. Are you encouraged at all about the controversy that flowed from that, that there was, seemed to be quite a bit of disappointment that it wasn't? Yeah, I, I actually, um, uh, I was in a University of Toronto classroom with some law students and, and I heard many of them you know, openly criticize you know, that this should have happened and what the time was now. Um, and I think it's really important to uh, understand that as a society, I think that there's definitely, there's something, there, all the ingredients are there for this transformation to happen. But again, the federal government has to be clear on, you know, is it really important to them to have this reconciliation effort? And if it is, then they have to do some major things, um, um, not just in, in the courts, but there's these TRC calls to action. And one of the TRC calls to action is to have this Indigenous Legal Institute or institutes. And that's something that we should have started working on last year. Um, but we have... Um, we haven't really been invited in to talk about those calls to actions, despite this government saying that they're going to implement, fully implement the TRC calls to action. Well, this is a really important one, and uh, we should be having those discussions and those dialogues about how these Indigenous legal institutes uh, are going to be implemented. What um, Returning to my question, what perspective do you think is lacking that an Indigenous lawyer could contribute to shaping the law of the nation and the provinces by being on appellate courts and Supreme Court of Canada that you think is essential to growing of us as a nation? Sure. I think I think one of the major things in the common law is the misunderstanding of what treaties are all about. I have yet, there's one case, and that's the Siwi case, or uh, Siwi case out of Quebec that got treaties kind of it was it's it's a good substantial case about treaties and understanding treaties but beyond that um historic treaties are not understood by by judges um there's a case about my treaty uh kuwait and grassy narrows that went to the supreme court of canada and 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 it was such a lost opportunity to understand that treaty and to make a sound decision that would forward that treaty and that treaty relationship that didn't happen just because judges didn't, don't understand it. There's an Indigenous perspective. And again, back to Indigenous law, there's a big Indigenous legal element and Indigenous legal principles that are part of treaties that just won't get captured unless you have Indigenous lawyers, Indigenous judges, Indigenous appellate judges, and an Indigenous person that under, has that understanding, carries that understanding at the Supreme Court. So leaving aside, hopefully, the day that an Indigenous lawyer does get appointed to the Supreme Court of Canada. What does a great day look like to you, Sarah? I, th I think um, in my practice, it's it's being invited into a lot of rooms uh, lately where important decisions are being made across governments. So I've been in, in bilateral and trilateral meetings with clients um, here in the province of Ontario Ontario, I've been in Ottawa, and just being trusted um, to forward ideas of a very ambitious nature, uh, and getting some some good feedback from the government about making those things workable, and having those dialogues. I think there. I think on a case by case basis, that's how we're going to push this stuff forward. And community by community, indigenous group by indigenous group, we're going to push these things forward as long as we have the right people in the rooms and uh, my good day is when I'm allowed in those rooms and I'm allowed to speak freely and, and give good ideas. You seem uh, to me like the person that never gives up and is fighting every day but is those times where you have to yourself is there something you do to relax and escape the law and try and free your mind and recharge yourself what do you enjoy doing? I enjoy going home like I, 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 I often go home uh, to Kuchicheng I have a beautiful house on the lake, um, and uh, I go to the lake, I, I think. And uh, the wonderful reciprocal nature I have with my, my community is, and it's, it's, it will sound kind of funny to some people, but I dream. And this gift of dream I have when I go home is, uh, is amazing because it connects me to my ancestors. And sometimes my mom comes to me, sometimes a grandparent, sometimes somebody I don't even know. And... Uh, 
just that gift of having those dreams and that connection to my community and knowing I'm going on the right path. And sometimes I get a really important message or a really important teaching. And it's amazing to me and it, that rejuvenates me. Speaking of messages, what is a message that you feel is presently lacking, uh, missing from mainstream media as it relates to law and First Nations people? I think um, <laughs> this whole scaremongering around veto is something that I think we have to just sort of reject is a narrative and say that the whole idea about two or more people living together is the idea of consent, right? Consent is part of a, of a, of a society that respects each other's rights. Consent is really important. And free prior to informed consent is sort of a boogeyman out there with First Nations. The fact that First Nations have the right to say yes or no about things that happen in their territories. And uh, I think consent is, is something to understand as human beings, that if you respect the other person as a human being, then you got to respect the right that sometimes they're going to say no. Um, but reasonably, right? Reasonably, they're going to, you know, collect all the information. And as long as there's information exchange and relationship development, that we can go forward together. And um, this idea of consent is a, is a good thing. It fosters better relationships and it fosters a future where both uh, parties feel like they have a shared future. And in sharing that, um, you are someone who's quite active on social media. So first of all, tell me about your uh, Twitter handle. My Twitter ha handle is Anakinagawin, which is an Ojibwe word for, um, it means Indigenous law. And what is it you get from engaging in social media? Because it's all not fun. Someday, we've already just talked about that a little bit, you know, and people will engage and they will at times even troll lawyers and things like that. But notwithstanding, you do it. Um, so what do you feel you gain from doing it? I think going back to that uh, treaty relationship, is, is sharing information and sharing knowledge and sharing perspective. And um, sometimes I think when people put information out there, particularly like I, I've, I follow a lot of ministers and, and, and I comment on different um, suggestions, and particularly if there's an oversight, there generally is with First Nations, that they didn't consider something or how it's going to impact First Nation rights. So um, putting that out there is a dialogue, but also... Um, I think for people to understand that you have a, an informed, maybe sometimes a provocative voice to share, I think it's 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 important because I think um, dialogue is important for get people to think about different perspectives is important, and um, and and that's how you create a truly rounded society. So it's for me, um, it's a responsibility to be on social media. So until you get appointed to the Court of Appeal or Supreme Court of Canada one day, uh, if you could reverse or tweak one Supreme Court of Canada case uh, right now, uh, what one would it be? Well, there's a really old case that's, I think if anybody's read anything I've written about, it's the St. Catherine's Milling and Lumber decision that you learn in property law in first year law school. And that decision, it was not a Supreme Court of Canada case, it was the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. Yeah, well, and that was the final court of appeal here in Canada. And it's um, it's utilized for uh, the province's jurisdiction over crown land, crown lands um, after treaties. Um, but it started off with a very race, racially um, inappropriately written um, trial decision. And it was talking about my people, my ancestors. And it was talking about them at a time where, you know, I have... For example, I have a New York Times report about one of the chiefs meeting one of the chiefs at the same time. The court talks about this unusually degraded type of Indian. Well, if you read the New York Times, you, you see this very rich, very noble, very you know st stoic leader who could you know talk for hours and not and not uh, not repeat words and not and not in uh, in basically um, forward an argument for two hours. And that was the type of person he was. And for this child decision to say all these racially awful things about my people, knowing that we in fact weren't those, you know, weren't weren't that, um, uh, I think is, is it's really hard for me to see that that case come up in, again and again. It came up in Haida 
nation in 2000, 2004. It came up again in Chillicotten uh, a few years back on the Aboriginal title case. Um, it's still a precedent that that Canada continues to go back to, and it just it, it actually hurts my heart to see that case being utilized again and again. Um, so that's one of the decisions. The other recent decision was was a section uh, a two case, freedom of religion case uh, that went to the Supreme Court of Canada in BC about a ski resort and the religious beliefs um, of a First Nation that that would uh, unduly harm a very spiritual place. And uh, it, I mean, it, it just it, it's just a case where I just like, I don't think the Supreme Court of Canada understands the Indigenous perspective on these things and the connection that Indigenous people have to the land and the idea that our human dignity is as much a connection to the land as it is to any, any other connection, familiar or otherwise. So assuming you're um, perhaps at times optimistic view of where we can be in 10 years, what do you think is a realistic place Canada could be as it relates to positive developments in Indigenous law in the next 10 years? Mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I think what, what we're hopefully going to start seeing is more Indigenous institutions. I think that's the promise of this United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, is that you're going to see more Indigenous institutions, like a Indigenous Legal Institute. Um, it's my hope that we can do... Um, those different interactions differently um, from environment to child welfare, where there's more indigenous representatives making the final decisions uh, are are, uh, participating in the final decisions. So a um, intersocial legal institution on those matters that are, that definitely intersect um, in a really strong way for indigenous people. So child welfare would be probably one of my starting places. There's going to be a tribunal to deal with the child protection matters. It's got to be intersocial. It has to have indigenous legal principles surrounding it. It's got to have indigenous decision makers making some of the final decisions. My final question is one I ask everyone, and that is if you could run a commercial <laughs> to the entire nation, everyone's watching a Stanley Cup final game. Uh, between the Canadians and the Toronto Maple Leafs or something like that, what essentially would be your message? I think my message would be that um, there's these vibrant Indigenous societies that continue to exist in Canada, and Canada would be so enriched if we just allowed those societies to be what they are, Indigenous societies with their own laws, their own institutions, their own way of doing things and stop trying to change those things, you know, um, make it part of Canadian identity. It's, it's, it should be, it should be integral to Canadian identity that these societies are vibrant and, and happening and, um, enriches Canadian society. Sarah Mainville, thank you very much for coming. It's so nice to see you again. You, you as well, McGwitch.